Thank you. It's been uh, a privilege to be preaching the gospel with you over these last uh, three weeks. Um, so thank you so much for your invitation uh, to do that. And it is wonderful today on this Easter Sunday to open the word to you, Luke uh, 24. If you've got a Bible, please open it up. We're going to walk uh, through uh, the entire chapter. And that's what I'm hoping uh, to do. Now, as you're turning to Luke 24, um, maybe you've seen the BBC website today, you've looked at the news, um, and it is official. It would seem that today, every church in Britain has been closed. Every church. Um, I think, actually, you'll be hard-pressed to find any church in the world um, open today. But if you look at other media outlets or if you look at something like The Spectator, there's been an article there which is asking the question, okay, with all that's happening now and all the churches having to physically close down, what does this mean for the church? What does COVID-19 mean for the church? And so The Spectator gives two options. It's either resurgence or ruination. This is either going to lead to a revival of the church or the ruin of the church. I wonder, what do you think? What do you think is going to happen to the church over the coming weeks and months? Well, interestingly, and at the moment, this is just anecdotal, but looking at other churches and talking to other pastors who have gone online, just like you have, uh, when they look at the numbers of people looking online, they are higher than they would usually get in church. Now, we don't know um, exactly who is looking in. We don't know how many person or people per kind of screen are watching. But it does seem that at the moment, whilst the church buildings are closed and churches like yourself are having to be quite thinking out of the box to reach people, it would seem that perhaps the church is reaching more. Perhaps you're watching this evening and you wouldn't have come to a church building. Well, if that's you, you are welcome and we're so glad that you've joined us. But what is going to happen to the church? Well, I think I know. I'll tell you my answer at the end. You can wait and see what you think. I think you can probably guess what I'm going to say. And I think Easter Sunday and Luke 24 in particular will show us the reason for my answer. It'll show us the reason for my answer. For you see, I think Easter Sunday and the first Easter is linked to evangelism. It's linked to evangelism. I think the first Easter primarily shows us that Jesus has risen from the dead. He has beaten death and there is no life for all who trust in him. But when you read the text, particularly Luke 24, it is strongly linked to evangelism, telling people the good news about Jesus Christ. So perhaps you saw it in the reading. Really, in Luke 24, there are three kind of accounts. The first account is the account of the women as they go to the tomb. The second account is the account of, of the walkers, the men on the way to Emmaus and their meeting with the Lord Jesus. And then the third account is the account of the witnesses and um, the apostles and how they meet the risen Jesus. And what I find fascinating is when you look at the three accounts, each of the three accounts go through four steps. They go through four steps. Confusion, challenge, clarification and commission. 
Let me show you these three stories, and I'm going to show you them by walking through those four steps. And I hope they will encourage us and push us towards more evangelism as a result of this Easter Sunday. Let me walk through them. And uh, with your Bibles, you can see where this is coming from the text. And I trust this is a message from the Lord for you. Now, the first thing you see is the confusion. Now, there must have been a lot of confusion in Luke uh, 24 because people are numb and raw. Because we've just read in Luke 23 about the trial and death of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it was brutal and public. Everybody had thought that Jesus was the answer. Everybody had thought that Jesus was going to lead them. And now he's been arrested. He's been taken through a trial and beaten and crucified with common criminals. The women, including his mother, loved him. The disciples who had been with him loved him. And he has been taken away quickly and violently. There must have been confusion. Often we talk about the stages of grief and the early stages are, are denial and confusion can come into that. In fact, the death would have been so quick and violent, I think we could call it a trauma. Can you imagine being Peter having seen that? Can you imagine being Mary having seen that? It would have been traumatic. We often say that people in trauma have one of three responses, fight, flight, or freeze. Some of them did. They just, they just went back to fishing to do their own things. Some froze. They didn't know what to do. There was confusion. Let me show you the confusion. You see first the confused women. It's there in verses 1 to 5. Here come these women. They must be exhausted. They've been up through the night. They've been watching what's happening, not just exhausted. They must be utterly depressed. Their hearts must be full of ache and sorrow. And there they are going, trying to do something for Jesus, trying to love him, trying to give some dignity to him. And as they go, they find something amazing. Perhaps you've had that experience of after a funeral, going to a gravesite to take flowers for the first time. It's a very difficult thing. Can you imagine going and the grave is open and the coffin is open and the body is gone? That would be confusing. It would be bewildering. It would be what happened to the women in the text, verse 4, perplexing. What is going on? Mary Magdalene assumes the body's been stolen. That can be the only logical explanation. Jesus was there and now the body has been stolen. But then to add to the confusion, two angels appear. So not only is the body gone, but now the angels appear. The women were confused. We see a similar confusion with the walkers. Later on in the passage from verse 13 onwards, you get these men on the way to the road, on the road to Emmaus. And really, I think what they're doing is, is flight. They've decided just to go back to life. They've gone to clear their heads. They've gone to start again. You see, they thought Jesus was going to change everything. And now he'd been killed. They thought he was going to redeem Israel. And he couldn't redeem himself. They had lost everything. 
and they're on a road to go away. Again, when you read the passage, they are completely confused. They're talking about it. It's all they can talk about. We thought he was going to redeem Israel. We thought he was going to save us. It seems that everybody in the city is talking about it, and they just want to get away from it. They are full of confusion. And then you've got the witnesses. I'm calling the apostles the witnesses because, well, A, it's good alliteration, but B, that's what they were meant to be. The apostles were meant to be the witnesses. And now they're very confused. They've seen the Lord Jesus die. They've seen the body be taken down. They know he's been buried. And then the women have come. The women have come completely shattered. They've been awake all night, as we saw. They're coming all emotional. And what do they decide? Well, they decide it's just the women. It's just the women. They're talking nonsense. What do they call it? Idle tales. Let's be honest. If someone came to you and said that they'd just seen a dead person walking, what would you think? I think you'd think it was an idle tale. It was just made up. You might say, this is just grief. This is just the first stage of grief. This is denial. But some of them, they went running. They had to go and see what was going on. They wanted to find out. And look what happens, verse uh, 37, when they kind of see the Lord Jesus and he finally appears to them in verses 36 and 37, now confronted with the resurrection themselves, the words that are used are terrified and frightened. They're all confused. They're all confused. For some, in coming to Christ, some start at a point of confusion. For me personally, when I came to Christ, I started at a point of confusion. Now, full disclosure, I'd been brought up in a Christian home. Um, I'd been brought up to read the Bible. I'd been brought up to go to a church um, three times on a Sunday. Um, and I never questioned any of it because I just assumed everybody else knew, just like I knew, that it wasn't true. That was my assumption. I can remember um, kind of going to RE in school and they started talking about different things and just thinking, yeah, but it's just not true. Church is what we do. It's a cultural thing where I come from. And I remember meeting some young people in a youth group who believed it. They genuinely believed. And I listened to their prayers. And in their prayers, they were praying to God as if he was real. They were praying to God as if Jesus had really died for their sins, as if they had a relationship with him. And I remember the confusion. I just remember thinking, what? You actually believe this? I used to think that Jesus walking on the water was on a par with Winnie the Pooh. I used to think that Jesus turning water into wine was on a par with the tooth fairy. It was just really confusing to me. And perhaps you're watching this this evening, and perhaps this is your first time, or maybe this is your hundredth time, and you're always just a little bit confused. How do they believe this? How can this be true? Well, if that's you, I want you to be encouraged. You're in the text. Here they are. They're confused. And I think for many... 
when we're confronted with the message of the gospel, the first response can be confusion. How is this true? Because it seems so different. It seems so strange. Well, we start with confusion in the three accounts. And the next thing that happens is we get a challenge. We get a challenge. That is, these three accounts, the women, the men on the road to Emmaus, and the witnesses, the apostles, they get challenged because, well, they should have known better. They should have expected it. So look back to chapter 24 and verses 5 uh, to 7. When uh, the angels come and speak to the women, uh, they're afraid, verse 5, and they bow their faces to the earth. And then, this is the message, he says, look, he's not here, he has risen. Remember how he spoke to you when he was in Galilee? Remember? There's a challenge there. You're confused, but hold on. This isn't new. You need to remember what was said. Jesus had explained this already. Jesus had told you that he was in control and he was going to lay down his life and then raise it back up again. And so the angels, in effect, rebuke them. What are you doing here? Why are you looking for a living person in a grave? Can't you remember what he said? We get that first Easter declaration. He is not here. He is risen. Again, it wasn't just the women that had forgotten. The walkers had forgotten. Again, you see it in verses 25 to 26. When they've been telling Jesus, not realizing who he is, about all that's happening. Then he says to them in verse 25, Oh, foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe. He says, don't you believe in all that the prophets have spoken? He says, look, you've read the Bible. You've seen it. It's there. Don't you get it? How foolish you are. How slow of heart. There is a challenge there. And it's exactly the same for the witnesses, for the apostles. You see it there in verses 38 to 43. Verse 38. What does Jesus say to them? Why are you troubled? And why do doubts arise in your hearts? They were meant to be the witnesses. And now they just can't believe it. I find verse 41 fascinating and perplexing. Verse 41, but while they still did not believe for joy and marveled, he said to them. It's fascinating, isn't it? It's so amazing that Jesus would come and tell them he's risen. It's so amazing. They did not believe for joy and marveled. It seemed too good to be true. And perhaps for some of us, sometimes the, the difficulty of the gospel and the confusion comes from this is just too good to be true. Is this just a fairy tale that has been made up for us? Is this just something to make us feel better? I read a book um, over the last couple of weeks. It's a, um, a settler book on, uh, on writing and storytelling, and it's called The Science of story, the science of story. And at the start of the book, I found it quite shocking um, when the author said, the reason as human beings we like story is because ultimately we all die and that's the end. And so we need stories just to give us some kind of entertainment before we die. And then he said, and that's the Bible. The Bible is a story we invent 
to give us some kind of hope before we die. Is that Christianity? Is it just the kind of opiate of the people, something to make us behave in life and do well for society and to keep us from just killing ourselves if death is all it is? Sometimes the gospel can seem too good to be true. I actually think the stories aren't there to kind of medicate us and to keep us before we die. I, I think those stories are echoes of the great story, not a made-up fable, but the true gospel message, the ultimate story, the meta-narrative of life. That is, there is a truth in the fact that there is a God who has created us, that we've rebelled against him and gone our own way. And now it's a disaster movie, isn't it? Our world is going from one disaster to another because we are, we're running this world without God. We're not using the, the maker's manual and things are going from bad to worse. But just as in all the greatest films, there is a hero, a hero who comes to save the day. I think everybody who writes of those heroes is writing of an ache in their heart that God would send his son to save us. You know, all the best stories have a twist don't they when you think the hero is going to save the day and then it looks like he's not and again i think that is a faint echo of the gospel on that first friday that first good friday that jesus the one who was meant to save us died game over not at all what looked like his loss was his greatest moment. Actually, what looked like his defeat was his victory. And through that, and coming to life on the third day, he rises from the dead victorious. You see, this isn't a made-up story. This is the true theme and history of eternity that is echoed in all the other stories. Deep down in our hearts, we are looking and they are restless, as one great theologian said, until they find themselves in God. We need to understand that that's why there's confusion. And sometimes we need to be challenged. We need to be challenged. And I think we can do that in different ways. Um, I think we can challenge one another. When I was kind of 15 and I was looking into the gospel, I'd come to this point where I decided, well, no, this, this just isn't true. No one believes it. Actually, people challenged me. They said, well, why do you think it's made up? I said, well, it can't be true. They said, well, have you ever read the Bible all the way through? Well, no. Have you ever looked at the claims of Jesus? Well, a, a little bit. Have you ever read any books on it? Well, no, not properly. And people helpfully challenged me. They didn't just challenge me and say, go off. They gave me books and I started reading and I devoured them because I started to realize people believe this. Scientists believe this. Professors believe this. What is going on with these people? Perhaps you're watching this this evening and you need to be challenged to look into this, to look into it more. If you're confused about the faith, if you're wondering, did Jesus really rise from the dead? Look into it. Look into it. I'm a firm believer the Christianity never says, switch off your brain and believe. I'm a firm believer that Christianity comes like Luke does at the beginning of the gospel. And he says, look, many have written an account of this. I've investigated them carefully. 
and now I'm presenting them to you that you may believe. In effect, Luke's gospel is written to show you the evidence so that you can believe. And it's a wonderful thing to look into that. I wonder whether sometimes, going back to what the disciples did in that verse that just amazes me, that they don't believe for joy and marvel, I wonder sometimes if we just think it's too good to be true. It's too good to be true. On one level, it is too good to be true, isn't it? That the God of creation would become a part of creation and would live and die for created beings like you and me so that we can be lifted up and live with him for eternity. It does seem too good to be true, but it is true. It's wonderful. And the reason we know it's true is because Jesus lived and died and rose from the dead. Do you know the amazing news of the gospel is this? If you realize that you are living away from God, if you realize that actually in the way that you're living, you're rejecting God, when you feel that ache and sin in your heart, if you come to God and repent and confess your sin and trust in Christ, he will forgive you. He will forgive you. I want to challenge you this evening. Don't be like the men on the road to Emmaus who were, as Jesus put it, slow to believe. Don't be slow to believe. We are living at a time when anybody of any age living in any place could die very quickly. I don't say this to frighten you or to manipulate you, but just to state the fact. We must not be slow to believe. I think people always put things off, don't they? Next time, next year, when I get that promotion, when I get through that season, when I'm older, don't put it off. Don't put it off. Don't be slow to believe. Make sure that you are right with the Lord and that you have the life that he wants to give you. So confess your sin, trust in Christ. He will come to you and give you new life. So he comes and he challenges them and we need to be challenged. And then what he does is he clarifies. There's a clarification. For the three accounts, you get this clarification. So look back and you see the women, verses seven to eight. He comes back and he says, look, this is what Jesus said to you. He said, the son of man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and the third day rise again. Interestingly, three times this is pointed out in verse 7, verse 26 and verse 46. And the same message is brought through. What did Jesus say? He must be handed over, crucified and risen again. He reminds the women. He clarifies the gospel. He does exactly the same for the walkers. In verses 27 to 32, we have what I love to call the greatest Bible study ever. Just wonderful. The Lord Jesus sitting down and going through the Old Testament with them. That's the Bible they had. Those are the scriptures they had. And saying, here I am. That's about me. This is about me. What an amazing Bible study. Going through, clarifying, showing them the true message. 
And then he comes to the witnesses, to the apostles, in verses 44 to 47. Again, this is what he says, verse 44. These are the words which I spoke to you while I was still with you. He clarifies. He tells them. Look, this was prophesied. This was predicted. One of the things on our journey of faith, one of the things in coming to Christ is even in the midst of the confusion, and I've challenged you to investigate, you need to investigate for clarification. You need to understand the gospel. The best place to get that is in the Bible, to read the Bible. The best place to understand what the Bible is saying is in a church, is to ask the elders of the church or your Christian friend to say, can you explain this to me? The wonderful thing is you don't have to put this off. You don't have to say, well, look, once, once this whole pandemic is over, when lockdown is over, I'll look into this. Look, you've probably got more time now than you're ever going to have. You can meet with someone on Zoom. You can talk to someone over the phone. You can order books together and read them. Look into these things to understand the gospel. But when it comes to this clarification, there's something you need to grasp. And this is vital. This is really important. You see in verse 31 and verse 45, it comes up twice. So in verse uh, 31, for example, when you've got the two on the road to Emmaus, Jesus is explaining to them all about the Bible and all about how he is the message of the Bible. And then in verse 31, it says this, then their eyes were opened and they knew him. Then their eyes were opened. Have a look down at verse 45, and I think we'll, that will help us. Verse 45, talking to the witnesses, he says this, and he opened their understanding that they might comprehend the scriptures. Do you see what's happening there? The Bible is telling us that Jesus opened their eyes, that Jesus opened their understanding. Now, this is what you have to grasp. The gospel is a supernatural message. It's not a natural message. It's not something that you would come up with. It's not something that you can just investigate and just decide to believe. Actually, I think left to ourselves, we won't want to believe it. Let me tell you why we don't want to believe something that is too good to be true. Okay, why don't we want to believe? If the gospel message is too good to be true, it's all amazing, why don't we want to believe it? Let me tell you why. Because it has huge implications. So over in John's gospel, when Thomas sees the risen Christ, he doesn't want to believe that Jesus is risen, but when he finally sees Jesus, he makes this huge um, confession and he calls him, my Lord and my God. Because you see, if Jesus has beaten the grave and he's risen from the dead, he is, as we sang at the start, crowned with many crowns, well then he is now Lord. And that has huge implications. Because in becoming a Christian, you're not just being handed life. You're getting your life in God. You are now his. And actually, I think when I turn back to when I was 15, that's why I struggled to become a Christian. I think that period of time took so long. Yes, because I had intellectual questions. I had loads of questions about the reliability of the Bible, about evolution, about all of those things. Loads of questions. 
But the big thing that was stopping me was if I become a Christian, then I can't do what my mates are doing. And all the things at that age of life I was growing up and physically desiring to doing, actually that wasn't going to be the right life for me. And so actually it wasn't an intellectual problem. It was a moral problem. I'm not saying there's no intellectual problem. But what I am saying is it's not just intellectual. I read a book lately uh, written by an eminent or famous atheist. And when I read the book, for a man who is a genius, some of the arguments in the book were pedestrian. And as you read the book, you just get the feel of just there is a hate here for Christians. There is a hate for God. It's not just an intellectual book. There's a moral dimension behind it. So, so this is a challenge, isn't it? My challenge is, if you're looking into the gospel, into Christ, into the faith, and you still haven't trusted, I, I want to say, yes, there are intellectual problems and questions that you need to address. And I'm saying, ask those, ask them. They can be answered. But I'm also saying, be honest about the moral problem. The fact that Jesus wants to be Lord of your life. That in becoming a Christian, you are becoming his. We need to understand. And here's the wonderful thing of the passage. This is why I read for you verse 31 and verse 45. See, the wonderful news is this. You don't have to believe on your own. In fact, you can't believe on your own. You see, the Bible teaches us that the faith we put in God, the faith that saves us, the Bible says, is a gift of God. It's a gift of God. And you see that working out in the passage. It is God who opens their eyes. It is God who opens their understanding. So that's what happened to me at age 15, you see. In the end, I remember one night, it's a very uh, uh, kind of odd place to become a Christian. I was in a scrapyard. My father was welding under the car. I was sitting inside the car. He said, here's a, um, a glass of water. If it catches fire, put it out. It's not the best parenting technique. Um, and I was sitting in the car. And I remember it just came to a moment. And I just felt compelled. I had to pray. It was as if the penny dropped. I'd been looking into it and I'd been praying, asking for God to reveal himself. And in that moment, he did. My eyes were opened. My understanding was opened. We need a supernatural gift of faith to believe. You might know a Christian. And you might know someone who was in a, a church for years and they listened to sermon after sermon after sermon and it just didn't make any sense. It was just confusion and boredom, apart from maybe the occasional interesting illustration. And then one day, it's as if the preacher learned how to preach. It's as if he got a new message and became good. The preacher didn't change. But God, the Holy Spirit, opened their eyes and their understanding. And so there's a sense in which in coming to your journey of faith, whilst you investigate intellectually, why not? Brilliant. You must also pray. Pray that God would open your eyes. Now, that can seem counterintuitive. Well, hold on. I might not even believe that God exists. Yeah, okay. But why not pray to the one you don't know who is there? One of the greatest Bible prayers is, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. 
And one of the things we need to do in investigating is to say, I'm looking into this, but I'm praying that if you are there, you will open my eyes. There needs to be the natural pursuit of the gospel, but a supernatural act, which means if you're the type of person who says, I wish I had your faith, that faith can be a gift. If you're at the moment thinking, I could never believe, or I could never give up my life and give it to God. No, in and of yourself, you can't. But God will give you faith. He will open your eyes. He will open your understanding. And for those of us who are Christians, sharing the gospel with our friends, this has huge implications for the way we share the gospel. We must help people search the scriptures, for in them they find life. But we must pray for them as well. We must go as ambassadors of Christ and open the scriptures, but we must pray and pray and pray, Lord, open their eyes. So the confusion is challenged, and then there's a clarification. Jesus is clear, the angels are clear. He had to be handed over, he had to be crucified, and he would rise again. And so fourthly and finally, what we get in the passage is a commission. We get a commission. We see the way that having believed and realized what Jesus has done, their life is now changed, and now they're witnesses. So you see the women, do you see it there in verses 9 and 10? In verses 9 and 10, then they returned from the tomb and told all these things to the 11 and to the rest. They told the apostles. Here's the amazing news. When someone becomes a Christian, they become a natural evangelist. When something amazing happens to you, you just tell other people about it. I find this amazing. You never have to tell someone who's engaged to tell you about their engagement. They just want to show you the ring straight away. You never have to tell a first-time grandparent to tell you loads of stories about their grandchildren and show you hundreds of pictures. They just want to tell you. They never have to go on a course. There is no course for being a boastful grandparent. And when you come to know Christ, you will want to tell others. Going back to when I was 15, I became a Christian and I used to hate craft lessons in school. They were two hours long, sat around some wooden table for two hours. I started to love my two-hour craft lessons because I saw them as an opportunity of, they're stuck here with me for two hours, I'm going to share the gospel. There was a love of the gospel that came. And so the women go and witness. You see exactly the same with the walkers in verses 33 to 35. They just rise and they go to Jerusalem. They find the leaven and they said, the Lord is risen indeed. I love that. Verse 33, so they rose up that very hour. There was an urgency. There was an urgency. When you know Christ, there is an urgency. There must always be an urgency to share the gospel. But I think at the moment, there must be a particular urgency. There must be a particular urgency. Over the years in pastoral ministry, there have been a number of occasions where, for example, uh, unbelieving husbands in the church have heard the gospel. It's confused them. We've challenged them. We've tried to clarify the gospel, and there's, been, there's just been no response. And we've prayed for them, and, and godly wives have 
prayed for them. And there have been occasions by God's grace when at that moment on their deathbed, myself or, or an elder has gone to visit them and shared the gospel that one last time. And there has been a, a response. There's been a number of occasions where people we thought would never be saved have been saved. And there is something wonderful um, that people in those last moments and those last days can trust in the Lord. One of the things that the coronavirus has created is a situation where that is now not possible. So in those last moments, you cannot go. Uh, just uh, this weekend, one of our dear sisters in the church has gone to glory. No one could go and be with her. This means that I think there is a particular urgency for sharing the gospel at the moment. Don't leave it. Don't wait for that deathbed conversion. I don't think we ever should wait for that. But at the moment in particular, we should share the gospel. Death at the moment is coming fast and it's coming unexpectedly. We must always want to share the gospel. But in this season, I think as Christians, we should be spurred on more greatly and more powerfully to share the gospel. There must be an urgency, just as it says there in that text. So they rose up that very hour. Perhaps when this stream finishes, you should rise up this very hour. You should write that email, make that Zoom call, start that phone conversation. Don't leave it. Don't leave it. And we see, finally, we see the witnesses. We see the apostles' uh, witness. We see it there in verses uh, 48. This is what Jesus says to them. And you are witnesses of these things. Behold, I send the promise of my Father upon you. I love that. I love verse 49. The witnesses, the apostles, are told they're going to be witnesses, but they're told, I'm going to send you what the Father has promised. And what is it? Well, it's something or someone that they have to wait in Jerusalem until he comes. It's the power of the Holy Spirit. Just as I said earlier on, to have faith to believe in Christ is a gift. Well, for those of us who share the gospel, for our friends and families and loved ones to come to Christ, you may be thinking, but John, I can't do it. But John, under pressure, I can't string a sentence together. But John, when those difficult questions come, I can't answer them. I know. And the wonderful thing is, God, by his Holy Spirit, will give power. He's the one who opens blind eyes and makes minds to see. And so we need to step out in faith. We need to share the gospel and we need to pray for God that by his spirit. You see, we don't have to go off and wait. The day of Pentecost has come. The spirit has come in power on the church. And many are wondering, <clears throat> is this a time when the spirit in particular will come in power? Well, we pray for that. But I pray also that we would go and share the gospel. The Lord Jesus will take your faltering lips. He will take your crackling logic. He will take your inability to remember the complete verse. 
He will take your nerves and by the Holy Spirit, he will breathe power. Some of the most amazing conversions I've seen have not been through the most um, well-trained evangelists, but through some of the most timid housewives. We need to trust in the Lord. We need to step out in faith and share the gospel. So let's go back to the question. What is the future of the church? Through this season, will it be our resurgence or our ruin? I pray it will be our revival. I pray it will be our revival. And so, brothers and sisters, let us step out in faith. This Easter, let us see the great commission that we are to go out. And if you're here this evening and you haven't trusted in Christ yet, do not be slow. Do not be slow. Come to the Lord Jesus. Confess your sins. Trust in him. Know that your weeping for the night can now be turned to joy in the morning.